Like Aldrin mentioned, I've uh, been coming here a number of years. I, I recall the very first time I came, uh, I believe it, you met me at the airport, and he asked me how my flight was. So, well, the flight was fine, but the concourse was a little rough. I said, oh, how's that? So, well, I was walking down the concourse. I wanted to get something to drink, so I bought, uh, stopped and bought a large cup of Coca-Cola. I'm walking down the concourse with a bag in one hand and a cup of Coke out in the other, but the problem is, the place where I bought the Coke had run out of lids, so there was no lid on this cup. And I'm walking down the concourse, and as I'm walking along at a pretty good clip, I notice out of my peripheral vision down on the floor something red that it's too late to keep from stepping on it. I've already started that step. And sure enough, my foot went on that red stuff, which ended up being a big blob of ketchup. I don't know why that was there, but when my foot hit that ketchup, I mean, it just slid like that. And I went down. When I went down, my arm holding that cup of Coke went like this. <laughs> so. There I am wearing a coat and tie and move the concourse on the floor, coke running down my face, the acid burning my eyes. And uh, I'm happy to report the trip up this time was a little, little smoother. But uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 29. I feel the Lord leading me to speak on Psalm 29 this morning. Psalm 29. Um, you know, ever since I was a child, I was fascinated by thunderstorms. You know, the flashes of lightning, the... Uh, the, the, the clashes of the thunder, the howling wind, the sheets of rain blowing in sideways. Well, how do you respond whenever you encounter a thunderstorm? Do you just sit back and enjoy the show? Maybe you get a little nervous and uneasy, wishing it would just hurry up and pass by. Perhaps you find a good sleeping weather. Some people, I don't know how, enjoy sleeping through, uh, through the rain. Or do you just merely ignore it as another aspect of weather and go on about your daily business? Well, you know, in Psalm 29, David will actually tell us how to read the weather. He tells us the meaning of the storm. So I'd like us to hear what David has to say to us this morning. It's a, it's a very simple psalm, but in its simplicity, it gives us profound truth. But before we actually look at the scripture, would you join me for a brief word of prayer? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before your throne, and our simple petition is that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that uh, we encounter in your word this morning, and then make personal application to our hearts and lives. And we submit this petition in the name of his majesty on high, your Son, and our Lord Jesus the Christ. Amen. I want us to begin by looking at uh, verses 3 through 4 here in Psalm 29. Verse 3 through 4, David says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Now, what is David talking about here? Well, as he looks out to the west, he sees a storm brewing over the Mediterranean Sea. He sees dark, heavy clouds first forming and then looming over these boisterous waters of the Mediterranean Sea, growing ever larger as they approach closer to land. And what begins as the distant rumble of thunder continues to grow and intensify until soon he is enveloped by sonic peals of thunder. It is a show of sight and sound that David here characterizes as both powerful and majestic. But as he continues through the psalm, he will continue to track the storm. So now the storm has approached the coast of Phoenicia. It is blowing through the land of Phoenicia. Now it is due north over the mountains of Lebanon. And this is where we pick up his description of the storm in verses 5 through 7. He continues in verses 5 and 7 and tells us that the voice of the Lord 
breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Sirion like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. He references here the cedars of Lebanon. They were renowned in the ancient world for their height, their durability, and their beauty. They wore to the ancient world what I suppose redwoods or the sequoias out in California would be to us today. Kings built their palaces and temples from them. But these majestic cedars were no match for the storm. The, the lightning was striking and shattering and, and, and uh, uh, just shredding them to pieces. I remember uh, quite some years ago, one night, uh, there was a thunderstorm going on around uh, my home. And I had just remarked to my wife how close the lightning must be because no sooner would you see the flash of light that you would hear the thunder. And when I said that there was a massive boom and a bright, uh, brilliant flash of light, and the lights flickered and went out in the house. And I said, that was really close. In fact, it sounded like I might have hit something. I grabbed my flashlight, went outside and, in the rain and shined it, and I looked at this big tree right next to our house, and the top of the tree had obviously been struck by lightning. It had been sheared off. And as I shined the, light, uh, the flashlight across the roof of my house, there was a huge branch that had been shot like a projectile right through the roof of my house. And well, that's what uh, David says this storm is doing to these majestic cedars of Lebanon. Now by Lebanon, of course, he means not the modern day country of Lebanon, but the mountains of Lebanon, the Lebanon range. And he references here in this verse, Sirion. Sirion was the Phoenician name for Mount Hermon, which was the highest peak in the Lebanon range of mountains, over 9,000 feet high. And so this massive peak could be seen uh, from miles away. And what David is telling us is that as impressive as these mountains are, they seem literally to, to shake and tremble under the power of this storm that creates such upheaval. He says they dance about like a young calf frolicking in the pasture or like a, a young unicorn. In the Bible, of course, a unicorn refers not to a, you know, a majestic white horse, but uh, more to some kind of wild ox or rhino-type creature with a, with a horn. And in verse 7, he tells us that the voice of the Lord divided the flames of fire. The, the reference to flames of fire here would be a reference actually to lightning as it comes down and splits and divides. Uh, and it's just striking devastation to this mountain range. And progressing yet further through the psalm, David continues to track the storm. So we pick up in verses 8 through 9. And here he writes in verses 8 through 9 that the voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds the calf and discovereth the forests. And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. So now the storm has moved on to the east of the mountains and is blowing in the wilderness region of Kadesh. And this it does, he says, with a twofold result. First of all, he says it makes the hinds the calf. The storm, that is, is so scary and frightful to the wildlife in the region that it startles those with young into premature labor. Some, some of these animals are just terrified by this storm, like a golden retriever I once had who would terrify it every time there was a thunderstorm and come and run and jump in your lap. The problem was she was a big golden retriever weighing in at over 100 pounds. She'd be trying to get as close to you as she could. It's like, look, you're really not a lap dog, please, you know. But she was terrified when she heard the, the thunder. And now does uh, the storm make the hinds to calf. He says in the latter part of verse 9 that this storm discovers the forests. What he means here is that the wind is, strip, is stripping the trees bare of, of any branches and leaves. 
Just the other week, a tornado landed in the community where my son lives. Uh, fortunately, he, he was safe, but it did quite some devastation to his uh, community. Uh, some people lost their lives. There was a lot of damage to the buildings. And you even look at what it did to the trees. You see the branches just torn off. Some of the trees uh, almost just look like uh, telephone poles if they were left standing at all. And, and, and that's what he's saying this storm is doing here to the wilderness. And so in summary, in verses 3 through 4, David begins by observing the storm out to the northwest over the sea. And here, thunder is the most impressive omen of this coming storm. And here David references the voice of the Lord a few times and the Lord himself once. Continuing to the next stanza in verses 5 through 7, we now see that the storm has moved through Phoenicia and is now due north over the mountains of Lebanon. And here... It is the lightning that is the most impressive display of its power. And once again, David references the voice of the Lord a couple times and the Lord himself once. Moving on to the next stanza, verses 8 through 9. Now the storm has moved off to the northeast. It is now over the wilderness east of the mountains. And here it is the severe winds that are the most impressive display of its power. And here once again, he references the voice of the Lord a couple times and the Lord himself once. Now you might ask yourself, why does God inspire David to give us a description of a thunderstorm, a simple thunderstorm, with a couple clues? Uh, first of all, we've observed that he references the voice of the Lord several times in this psalm, seven times to be exact. That's probably not coincidental, as you know, the number seven is like God's number, this number of divine perfection. So it's probably not coincidental that he mentions the voice of the Lord precisely seven times. And also we observe that he directly references the Lord himself once in each of these stanzas where he describes the aspects of the storm. And his point is this. This storm is not just a freak of nature. It's not just weather doing what weather naturally does. This is not a matter of a simple common weather pattern. No, this storm represents the direct handiwork of God. It is God himself who creates that storm. It is God who guides and directs the course of that storm. And it is he who controls the effects and the outcomes of that storm. And hence, he is not the God of the deists. The deist, you know, is the one who believes that God initially created everything and then just uh, stands back and lets creation run itself now by precise laws of nature. Essentially, he just wound the clock and steps back and lets the clock tick away. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is directly involved in the affairs of men and this world. He is directly involved in every affair in your life. And thus, what David is saying is that when we encounter a major thunderstorm, if we have ears to hear, then when we hear the thunder, we are really hearing the voice of God. Not literally, of course, but metaphorically insofar that we are witnessing his handiwork, his direct intervention into our world and our lives. And David is saying is, what he is saying here is that if you have eyes to see, then when you see the flashes of lightning, we are actually seeing the Lord himself at work. Not visibly, of course, but providentially, as it is he who is guiding and directing these forces of weather. And so David does reference the Lord. 
But a second clue to David's intent in writing this poem about the weather could be found in this observation. That although David had certainly spent time up north and had probably witnessed such storms in his life, he spent most of his life in the south, in the region of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. Why then, you ask, why might not David describe a, a local weather phenomenon closer to home instead of some storm blowing up way up north? Perhaps it is because of this reason. Phoenicia and Syria were to the north, and they were worshipers of Baal. It was the Phoenicians who would introduce Baal worship to Israel. Now, Baal, you understand, was the god of rain and thunder and lightning. And in an agricultural society such as theirs was, you desperately needed the right amount of rain at the right time. And in such a society, then, Baal was an all-important god. His palace was supposedly built from the cedars of Lebanon. And supposedly, in the distant past, the earth had at one time been covered entirely by the chaotic, unruly, and unpredictable waters of the sea god. But Baal, in his power and might, successfully conquered that sea god and brought dry land forth from the waters as a place where mankind could safely and securely dwell. But what David is arguing is that it is the Lord Jehovah, not Baal, who controls these forces of nature. And what David here argues in this psalm is a point that will later be proven by Elijah the prophet in his contest with the prophets of Baal. You remember the story, Elijah challenges these false prophets to a contest. Each would build an altar, place a sacrifice thereupon, and the God who answers by fire would be acknowledged as the true God. Well, Baal's prophets go first. They pray all day long, but... Nothing happens. Then Elijah prays. It's his turn. He prays one short, simple prayer. And instantly, the fire falls from heaven, devouring not only the sacrifice, but all the water that had been poured upon and around the base of the altar. And then, Elijah begins to pray for rain. I had not rained for the previous three and a half years because earlier, Elijah had called for a drought upon the land. Now he is praying for the drought to end. And soon, a small, dark cloud begins to take shape out over the Mediterranean Sea. It grows larger and larger and moves inland. And before you know it, there is the sound of abundance of rain. And the Lord, He is God, the people are forced to acknowledge. And thus David would argue for us that this world is not under the control of random forces of chance, nor yet even under the control of the precise laws of nature, and certainly not under the control of any kind of mythological God, but it is under the control of the Lord himself. Recognizing then that every storm represents to us the voice of God, how then should we respond whenever we hear that voice? Well, David in this psalm will give us a twofold response. The first response is in the first couple verses prior to his description of the storm. And here he will reference the Lord four times. The second response is in the last two verses of the psalm, subsequent to his description of this storm. And here he will reference the Lord exactly four times. Let us consider the twofold response. First of all, in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2. David says, give unto the Lord, O you mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. 
Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There is an invitation here for the mighty to praise the Lord. Now, the expression mighty here is a Hebrew reference to the angels. Now, in a thunderstorm, we get but a glimpse of His power and majesty. But those angels who are privileged to dwell in His immediate presence get to witness the full force of His might and glory all the time. And what David does not explicitly say here, but what he is implying through this literary reference to the angels, is that you and I should join in praising the Lord. And for two reasons. First, because of his glory. For he says to give unto the Lord glory and strength. Meaning that we are to give recognition to the Lord for his glory and strength. Now the term glory, the Hebrew word translated as glory, essentially means to, to have weight, to be heavy. Uh, metaphorically, it means that you've got uh, you know, uh, metaphorical weight and, and significance. It means that you're important. And why is the Lord so important? Because of His strength, because of His power, it is a strength that we must acknowledge. You cannot ignore it. You cannot escape it. And after telling us three times to recognize the Lord's powerful glory here, He climaxes the stanza at the end of verse 2 with the call to worship the Lord. You know, to worship God means to acknowledge His worthiness. To worship the Lord is to recognize His worthship. And hence, He is both weighty and worthy. And worshiping the Lord is an important distinction from merely praising His power and acknowledging it. Allow me to illustrate, that, for example. We know back in the World War II era that Adolf Hitler rose to power, and he was very powerful because he had a massive military machine behind him. Now, had he not had this massive military and all of these industrial resources to support a war effort, the world could have safely ignored Adolf Hitler. We could have just considered him a nut and ignored him. But we could not ignore him because he was so powerful. He mattered in this world. You had to contend with the man. But unfortunately, of course, he used all that powerful power for evil and diabolical purposes. And thus it is that he was not worthy of the power that he possessed. Thus David is saying that we acknowledge that the Lord is not only gloriously powerful, but also that he is worthy to possess such power. And why? Because, as he said, he is holy. He's righteous, he's just. In verse 2, he references the beauty, that is the splendor, the, the majesty of his holiness. He wears holiness like a beautiful, majestic garment. And it is because he is absolutely holy that he can be trusted with such power. Which leads us to the second uh, response that we should render to God whenever we witness him at work in, in something as simple as a thunderstorm. That is, we should not only praise and worship Him, but we should also affirm our trust in Him. So notice how he concludes the psalm in verses 10 and 11, offering this response. In verses 10 and 11, he says that the Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. He tells us here that we can trust the Lord, first of all, because He is in total control of our circumstances. In the latter part of verse 10, He tells us that the Lord is King. He is sovereign of the world and in total control of all things. He controls every single drop of water in this world. 
every drop of water floating around in the oceans, every single drop now evaporating up into the air, every drop of water in the clouds floating through the sky, and every single drop of water that comes down in the form of rain. He tells us in the first part of verse 10 that he sat, meaning he sat enthroned. He sat on his throne at the flood. What flood? There have been many floods in the history of the world. But here David has in mind the flood, the flood of Noah's day, the global flood. In fact, the Hebrew word here translated as flood is always used 100% of the time in the Old Testament exclusively as a reference to that global deluge in the days of Noah. He sat on the throne in the flood of Noah. It was God who directed the collapse of all the water in the atmospheres, the breaking forth of the water and all the subterranean chambers of the earth and the overflowing of the oceans beyond their normal natural boundaries such that the entire world was flooded and he choreographed the entire thing from his throne. And that is why you can trust him with every single circumstance of your life. He is sovereign. Not only can we trust him because he's in total control of our circumstances, but because he is good. David makes this point in verse 11. In the first part of verse 11, he tells us that he gives strength to his people. Now, in the first verse, we are said to give strength unto the Lord, meaning we acknowledge and recognize and praise him for his strength. Now, here in the last verse, he is said to give strength to us, meaning that we become the beneficiaries of his strength. He makes his strength available to us during times of storm. And then the latter part of verse 11, we're told that he gives peace unto his people. Peace. Shalom. Shalom is the idea of wholeness, well-being. This is what the hymn writer was speaking of when he said, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And so it is well with my soul. Yes, it is well. It is well with my soul. And so in summary, whenever you encounter a storm, David says in the first couple of verses that you ought to use that event as an occasion to praise the Lord because he's both powerful and worthy. And he says in the last couple of verses that you ought to use that event as an occasion to reaffirm your trust in him because he is both sovereign and good. Now, what is the key takeaway? We have worked our way through the contents of this psalm as a whole. So the bottom line in this morning, then, what's, what's the key takeaway? What's, what's the key point and lesson that we learn? Well, I believe it is this. That David no doubt intends that we understand that what he says in this psalm about physical storms also applies to spiritual storms. The storms of life when everything comes crashing down around you. If you're like me, when it rains, it pours. Trouble never seems to blow in like a soft, gentle spring rain, right? Instead, it comes in like a massive thunderstorm with flashes of lightning and hail and wind blowing sideways, hurricane force winds. Is it not so? So how do you respond when you encounter in life a storm like that? 
Do you merely stand there in a dazed, shocked, unresponsive stance? Do you watch the show taking place all around you like an amazed spectator, enjoying the sights and sounds, but with no positive or constructive action? Do you respond in fear? Do you run, hide, cower, panic? Do you just check out, spiritually speaking, and still the storm passes by? All of those are wrong responses. Instead, at such times, you should proactively praise and worship the Lord and affirm your trust in Him. And when we respond this way, He will give us strength, His strength to weather the storm, and He will give us peace, a sense of well-being even in the storm. Nowhere is that concept better illustrated than in the life of Christ Himself. You remember the story in Mark chapter 4? The disciples with, with Christ on a ship on the Sea of Galilee, and suddenly this massive storm blows in, and the ship was rocking, and, and the waves were crashing over the edge of the ship, and they were afraid the ship was going to capsize and sink, and, and they were panicking. But where was Christ? In the back of the ship, asleep. He was peacefully resting in the midst of the storm. That is what you call peace in the midst of the storm. And as Jesus said in John 14, 27, my peace I give unto you. So the bottom line this morning is this. When the storms of life come, as inevitably they will, and perhaps even as now some of you may be weathering such a storm in your life, is it not good to know that it is God who created and introduced that storm into your life? Is it not good to know that it is God who guides and directs the course of that storm in your life? And is it not good to know that it is God who controls the effects and outcome of that storm in your life for your good and His glory? And is it not good to know that you can have peace even in the midst of that storm? For as David says, he blesses his people with peace, peace, even in the midst of the storm. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we've considered this simple psalm, but it's profound message, we ask that you'd help us to apply it in our lives. Whether the storm is physical or spiritual, help us always take the occasion and the opportunity to affirm our trust in you and to praise you that we might know your strength and your peace through all the storms we encounter in life, that our lives may bring glory and honor to you. And we submit this petition in the name of him who is peace, the name of him who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus the Christ. Amen.